a pointing finger. No one really likes having a finger pointed at them, do they? I know I don't like having a finger pointed at me. There's just something about a finger pointing at you, pointing at me, that kind of just unsettles my stomach. My nerves go up. I get a little tense. I wonder, have I done something wrong? Am I guilty? I remember very vividly when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old, being in this large children's choir. There are about 150 kids in this children's choir. And at this point, I was about eight, sitting on the second row, which that's where eight-year-old boys have to sit in choir practice, right? Right in the front or right behind the front row so that the choir director can keep an eye on these eight-year-old boys. And I remember... That particular day, we had this guest instructor from Great Britain. He had this big, magnificent accent, and he was going to teach us how to sing God correctly, not Gad, as you children say in Michigan. It's God. I remember that part, too. He made that very, very pronounced. You're going to pronounce God with authority. And so (laughs) there I am, and we're going, oh. So my friend, who's also an eight-year-old boy, sitting next to me in the row, he starts whispering to me these funny jokes. I go, ha, ha, ha. I look back at him, tell him a joke. And we're just giggling back and forth and back and forth, not paying any attention to what this guy's doing within 10 feet of us. And without any warning, he reached back to the chalkboard. That's when they still had chalkboards. <laughs> Children, you have no idea what I'm talking about. There's these things called chalkboards. And so he picked up the chalk. And he wound up like a Major League Baseball pitcher and threw the piece of chalk right at the chair seated next to me. And I jumped about three feet in the air. And then he pointed at me. The the, the chalk went out of his hand and then it went like this. And it just hung there. Young man, you mustn't speak when I am teaching. And he's like, yes, sir, I'm not going to say a word here. Not at all. And it just... We don't like having a finger pointed at us because it implies that we're guilty. So then all the 150 other kids are pointing at me, whispering, and I'm just humiliated, I suppose is the word for it. Perhaps rightly so. We don't like having a finger pointed at us. I don't like having a finger pointed at us, but we're really good at pointing fingers at other people, seeing the sins in other people, seeing the misbehavior in other people and kind of whispering about it, or maybe even occasionally throwing a piece of chalk at it. We point and we point and we point around. The disciples are really good at pointing fingers, determining who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. They wanted to know who's going to be first in Matthew chapter 20, even, the, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come with their mother. Can you imagine that scene? They really wanted to make sure they got the full case. You know, if my mother thinks I'm great, Jesus is going to think I'm great. And so they bring their mother. It's, it's their mother with the sons of Zebedee. That's how it's written in Matthew 20, verse 20. It's kind of humorous. And so they come to Jesus, and they say, and so the mother speaks, no. In your kingdom, I want my sons to sin on your right and your left. Can we work out this? I have this request. Much to the indignation of the other disciples, they're all mad. The other ten are looking at James and John and going, give me a break. You bring your mother. 
going on and on. And so the, but that was implying, for the sons of Zebedee, James and John, that they were better than the others. We're going to sit on his right and his left. You're not. <laughs> Before the Passover supper with Jesus, the Last Supper, they got into the argument of who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then after, even at the supper, right after they, they're, they're, they're celebrating this meal with Jesus, they get into the discussion again. Who's going to be the greatest? They're pointing fingers at each other around. That's what we expect of them. But in Matthew chapter 26, there's a surprise. Around Christ's table of grace, they, they don't point fingers at each other. Turn to Matthew chapter 26 with me, if you have your text of God's word with you. Matthew chapter 26, verse 20 and following. Where should our finger be pointed at Christ's table of grace? Listen carefully. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. There in the upper room. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. There he's demonstrating his omniscience. He knows what's in the heart of every man, as it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. He knew what was in the heart of every single man and woman and child. He knows what's in your heart. He knew which one was going to betray him. And he said, one of you will betray me. And then verse 22, here's the response that I want us to focus on tonight as we gather around the Christ's table of grace The disciples' response to Jesus' statement, being deeply grieved. Your translation might say, greatly distressed. They're in sorrow. They're in grief. Someone here, this small table, just us, one of these is going to betray our Messiah, Jesus And for the first time, maybe, in a long time, or if maybe never, they don't point their fingers at each other. We expect them to start saying, well, you know, Matthew was a tax collector. Thomas is kind of doubting things. He's a skeptic. James struggles with things. Peter, you know what Jesus said to Peter not that long ago, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. No, they don't, actually. They don't at all. Instead, the question that they began, they each one began to say to him, it wasn't the storm, everybody all together all at once. It was each one is deeply grieved, deeply distressed, and they're asking Jesus one by one, is it it I, Lord? Is it me? Surely it can't be me. Is, Is it me? This isn't a prideful rhetorical question where thinking, oh, surely it's not me. No, 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 that's not it at all. It's, is it me? Is it me, Lord? What's swirling around in Peter's mind? I did just hear Jesus. Give me a sharp rebuke. I run ahead. I think I got the plan all worked out. I think I can lead this thing practically for Jesus. I am a better PR rep than he is. And uh, no, I'm not. In my, in my moment of struggle with sin, do I give in to the lie and betray my Savior? Or Matthew, 
otherwise known as Levi, the tax collector. Is he thinking, I know, I struggle with this. I used to live for gaining money. Do I give in to that lust for wealth or money or power or prestige again? And then I, and I, and I choose that over Jesus. I betray him. Do I? John, bewildered, wondering. Thomas, these doubts that sometimes ring in his mind. He must have been wondering, do I give in? Do I believe those lies? Do I forget? Do I forget what I've seen and heard Jesus say and do and, and instead betray the one I love, the one I believe in, the one I've been following for three years? question for you and for me around Christ's table of grace this Good Friday and at every Good Friday should be not, well, I would never. Not pointing fingers at others, but the finger then pointed at myself, ourselves. Christ's table of grace, being at Christ's table of grace, you know, Jesus had washed their feet. Jesus was serving them. Jesus then gives this description in the verses following that he is going to lay down his life symbolically represented in these elements, the bread and the wine. My body's going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. And Christ's table of grace being there for you and for me and for the disciples, it prompts us to cease from inspecting the sins of others. The Apostle Paul talks about that when he discusses communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 too. Think about the other and loving them. That means you need to look at your actions. I need to look at my actions and stop inspecting the sins of others. That's what Christ's table of grace prompts us to do. No finger pointing around. The finger, instead of going out, goes in. Look at verse 23 with me then. So they're asking each one, and then he answered. Jesus says, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who is betraying him, as the gospel writer looking back said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Scholars argue that Judas was actually seated in the place of honor to Jesus' left. In other passages, we see that John was, was sitting in this position where he would be close to Christ's bosom, to Jesus' right. But it the one who would dip his morsel in the bowl that Jesus was using would be at Jesus' left. If you were looking at the scene, it would be our right. And that's actually the seed of honor, this tremendous symbol of grace actually to the betrayer, which then the disciples would say, well, surely it's, it's not this one seated in honor. They only realize that Judas is the betrayer after the fact. They don't see it here. And Jesus then could... Lean over to Judas. The others would not have heard him pointing out to Judas, I know you're the one. 
What an extension of grace. Even then to Judas the betrayer, the Christ table of grace. But Judas denies the Christ. Christ's table of grace prompts us to to cease from inspecting the sins of others, but then it also then prompts us to look at our own propensity to wander tonight. Someone asked Pastor John Piper, who's written all these books and is known by many, many people all around the world, is there, is there some point somewhere in your Christian walk that seems to bring doubt into your mind? Is it something about, about creation or is it something about the historical facts of Jesus? or something? Is there some point that you still struggle with doubt on occasion ever, Pastor John Piper? And he said, no, it's none of that. It's actually just my reality, looking at my life and the reality of how slow the sanctification process is in my life, that I still struggle with sin myself. To look at myself, for you to look at yourself. But when you then look at your own propensity to wander, Christ's table of grace then shows us that justice and mercy meet at the cross. They met at the cross, they didn't collide. It was a triumph of God's perfect justice and God's perfect mercy in the blood, in the body of Christ, and what he did for us, dying instead of us, satisfying God's just wrath, offering mercy to all who would turn to the Savior. And so when you and I, we turn and we look at our own need, our own propensity to wander, it's met with Christ's healing balm of grace every time, the grace upon grace, like waves upon a seashore that never, ever stop. Ray Ortland Jr. says, there is limitless grace. God's grace is limitless to sinners who send away all their excuses. To people who send away all of their excuses, they know they're in desperate need. They know they're prone to wander, and there is limitless grace in Jesus Christ for those who are not trying to come up with excuses, but instead fall to their knees and say, isn't me, Lord? I need your mercy. I know my struggle with sin. I know I'm very aware of my faltering and my failings. And the question for you and for me Certainly pastors are not any less prone to sin than anyone else. This is it me. Would you bow your heads with me? And first thought, this isn't a sermon for Uncle Uncle Joe or Aunt Susie. That's our initial thought too. Well, somebody else needs to hear this because I see the sin in their life. Here's the reality we often see <laughs> our own sin most prominently in other people's lives. But in order to rejoice in the magnitude of God's grace, we must fully understand the magnitude of our sin. That's the wonder of the cross. Jesus became sin for us, bore the curse for us, 
the magnitude of our sin, not his. He's sinless. He takes the punishment for us, for you. And so, the question for all of us to consider now with hearts tuned to God at Christ's table of graces, Lord, search my heart. Allow Christ's words to search your heart just as the disciples allowed Christ's words to search theirs. Would you betray the King of glory if push came to shove? Would you give in to money or wealth or power or prestige? Would you cave in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, to deny your Lord, this King of glory, who ascended in Jerusalem outside of the city, not a throne but a cross, wore thorns, not a crown, for you, for me. And now run to Jesus because he's waiting. He's waiting for you. The nails pierced through his hands, those nail-pierced hands are reaching out to you. The healing balm of Christ's grace when, when you confess When you humble, when I humble myself, when we humble ourselves, go to our knees in utter dependence on the Savior, realizing only He is enough. So let's pray together as we approach the table. Lord, we confess that we are so good at pointing our fingers at other people, seeing the sins seeing the mistakes, seeing the failings of others. It seems natural, and, and yet we know that we should be looking introspectively, circumspectly at our own lives, allowing your word to search our minds, to search our hearts. And when we do that, even right now, I know there's sin in me. Lord, cleanse me. Search me. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead us in your everlasting way. And we praise you that because your son Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross, his blood shed for us that you are just you're faithful to forgive us of all our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, Lord, we need your healing balm of grace as we approach your table in humility tonight. Through Christ, our rescuer and our redeemer, we pray. Amen.